0: Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. It's October 3rd. Thank you for joining me on a new podcast. And I got some uh, feedback last week. A lot of people felt that I was low energy. Well, I was. And I'll tell you the reason why is I've got bronchitis. And I've had it for uh, some time now and didn't know it, of course, because... I'm not really on top of my shit sometimes, and that's why I really wasn't able to be my typical self when I'm uh, ranting and raving uh, in this podcast. Now, I still have it. I'm taking uh, drugs for it now, so it's getting better. But that may be one of the reasons why I've been a little bit lower key of late. Now, this is going to be a little bit of a longer uh, podcast. Um, I'm going to split it up into two parts so you can take a break in between. It's a short part, and then it's a lengthier part. And I promise to speak about one of the craziest cases I've ever had that is really forgotten to history. It is the most shocking case, uh, the government allowing one of their cooperators to kill and kill and kill again and continuing to let him out just because he was helping them make cases. And it was from decades ago. So I suppose it's been lost uh, to history. If you go on the internet and you look for Michael Burnett, you look for articles about him, you'll see articles. There's significant profiles about what he did, the ridiculousness of how the government handled him. But you won't find any pictures of him. You know, maybe one. Uh, In the middle of his life, you won't find anything from the last 10 years. Howie Krantz, our client in this case, it was a murder for hire case in federal court in 1996 in Brooklyn. And the woman who was killed was a witness against Michael Burnett. This is a very long running cooperator slash con man for the FBI and not just the FBI for various states and other federal agencies. But you won't find a picture of Howie Krantz at all. And he's been dead for over 20 years. But I'm going to tell that story second. I want to go over a few things that are in the news. I just couldn't resist. I could have just done an entire podcast on the Howie Krantz case, the trial. But there's just some things that happened this week. I had to get out of my system. I just have to, because if I don't do it this week, it'll be stale next week. But I've got to do it. One thing is, I'm sure you didn't miss this, the New York City mayor, Eric Adams, who's in the club all the time usually, he somehow thought it was a good idea to go to Puerto Rico uh, to help those people out in the aftermath of their natural disaster. I mean, because that's all they they need is a a clubbing uh, uh, to earring-wearing New York City mayor to help them out in their time of need. But while he was there, of course, Eric Adams, who normally preens like a peacock, he doesn't accomplish anything, but he uh, somehow decides to start bragging about New York. New York City, like, it's just so great how awesome New York is and that it's a brand. That's what he says, it's a brand. And then out of nowhere, he takes a shot at Kansas and says, New York City is a brand, unlike Kansas A state that has no brand, he says, because, you know, that's what's important when you're determining what's a productive and good place to live. You go by which place has a brand. When you have this kind of mentality where you're concerned about your watches and your earrings and your pocket squares and things like that, like Eric Adams cares about and how shiny his sport jacket can be. These are the kind of things you're concerned yourself about, you know, not important things like quality of life and decency of the people. Adams is is so dumb that somehow he's the only person who lives in New York. He's the only one who isn't aware that it's become a toilet bowl of crime now. And that's New York City's brand. He thinks New York City is awesome, yet like he's utterly clueless because he doesn't have a job. I mean, he doesn't have a job. He should have a job as the mayor, but he doesn't have a job. He just goes out. He parties. He's got bodyguards and he goes to the clubs and he's got the bodyguards with him 24 seven. So he doesn't know that there's any kind of crime issue. because it doesn't impact him. This is a 62 year old dude who goes clubbing every night. Think about that. He refers to himself in the third person like Bo Jackson. Think how much of an imbecile you have to be. Bo Jackson was an athlete, of, a sen- of the century, perhaps. This was like a-, a throwback to, like, Jim Thorpe. He can refer to himself in the third person. Eric Adams is a nobody, he's a nothing, he's a, he's a grifter. He refers to himself in the third person. Somehow, Eric Adams, uh, when he was talking about what a great brand New York has, he missed the fact that crime is up 37 percent since he took over as mayor. And he ran on a platform, of course, of reducing crime. And it only just went up significantly more. Murders are up 34 percent compared to 2021. Shootings are up 13 percent from 2021 to 22. Grand larcenies up 41 percent robberies up 37 percent to top it off he sent up tent he set up tent camps for illegal immigrants in a flood zone uh, not near any subways in the bronx even uh andrea what is her name alexandria cortez jimenez aoc she's appalled at how clueless uh, eric adams is and that's saying a lot if aoc thinks you're clueless you really got to be you know off the deep end And do you really want that giant migrant tent camp in your neighborhood of these illegals that we haven't vetted that are just going to set up tent in your neighborhood? A thousand of them? Guess what follows with them? Can you guess? Well, just more crime. And what better place to have it than in the Bronx? Because they really deserve that. They deserve more crime. And at the same time Adams was bragging about how awesome New York is, a 61-year-old grandmother and a 9-11 first responder, this was a 24-year EMT, who was scheduled to retire in six months and described by everybody who knew her as like the loveliest person. Well, she was stabbed more than 20 times by a lunatic in the middle of the day in a quiet neighborhood in Queens. This was last week. Two days earlier, a defund the police socialist Queens councilwoman, this Tiffany Caban, released a public safety guide discouraging merchants from calling the cops. And that was in the very area where this poor EMT was massacred in broad daylight. This guide that she put out urges small business owners: you don't call the cops, you dial you dial three one one, not nine one one. You seek mental health services for people who are hacking you up with a machete, um, and you engage in community mediation instead of calling nine one one to summon the police when there's trouble. That's what she thinks. The guide also advises merchants to, quote, give the person causing harm the chance to correct their behavior before seeking intervention. So while they're hacking the shit out of you, cutting your arms off, taking a meat cleaver to your head, you say, excuse me, I want you to have a chance to correct your behavior before we try to stop this. Say no, say stop, or that is not okay, sir, you are chopping me up with a machete, please stop. This is not okay. This is bad behavior. That's what the guide says you're supposed to do. She tweeted, we're distributing them to local businesses. So our neighborhood is equipped with better ways of solving problems than simply summoning police every day. A challenge arises. Listen, when you're getting hacked up by a lunatic, that is not a challenge. That's a murder. Okay, that's a murder. Of course you call the police. But she tweeted that, and that was when she was circulating her small business public safety resources guide. When she was criticized by a queen's mother of five who was pummeled 10 days ago in the subway on her way to work, she was pummeled to the point that she lost sight in one of her eyes. Caban tweeted, subway violence is a one in a million event. Let's not fear. Let's not let fear mongering politicians and corporate media outlets scare us into thinking we have a dangerous, scary public transit system. That's what she tweeted. First of all, it's not one in a million. I ride the subways. It's wildly dangerous. There are homeless people on them all the time. As there's not enough cops on the uh, subway platforms. Nobody wants to ride the subways anymore. It's not one in a million. Not even close to one in a million, you fucking lunatic. It's very, very dangerous in New York City. Meanwhile, when the woman got pummeled, when she was nearly beaten to death in Caban's district in the subway, she didn't tweet a single thing of support, only to push back on the fact that there's crime in the subways. Everybody knows that there's crime in the subways in New York. That's why nobody's riding it anymore. This is what New York is now. Anyone with a brain would want to get away from this place as fast as they can, if they could. You've got a jawbone of an ass as your mayor, who all he cares about is partaying, and you've got a flea-ridden, scummy socialists that are all over New York in charge that New York City elected. You want it, you got it. Deal with it. Now, the the next subject up is is Kamala Harris. I mean, this woman is just like a walking disaster. She gave a speech after the, the hurricane in Florida basically destroyed half the place. Instead of doing all that she could to help the situation, like everything else she does in her life, she makes it bad, makes it worse, and of course makes it about race or some other woke, worthless bullshit. She said this is after the place is licking its wounds. There are dead people all over the place. Uh, So many homes have been destroyed. People are homeless. She said federal aid would be given out to minorities first. This, Because she's all about minorities. This is a lunatic moron, an affirmative action hire who is so incompetent. She should be locked in a closet and the key should be thrown away. She should never be heard from again. How would you like to be someone who just had their house destroyed in Florida, and this cackling imbecile tells you that because you're white, you're going to have to wait for help behind all the minorities? Aid should be given out to people who need it the most first. Period. End of story. Regardless of color. And that's exactly what Governor Ron DeSantis had to say to correct this jackass. But this is the leftist slop that we've elected. As San Francisco's district attorney, Kamala Harris locked up black parents because their children missed school. That's how much she cares about blacks. She put them in jail. The parents. As district attorney, she arrested over 8,000 people for marijuana in seven years. For marijuana. But in 2019, during an interview... Harris laughed as she admitted to smoking weed herself while she was in college, but she had no problem putting black people in jail for it. She repeatedly supported the three strikes law, which is known as the habitual offender law, and she opposed reforming it. The three strike law is when an individual is sentenced to life in prison after they are convicted of three crimes. That's Harris. Those are black people that were getting life sentences. Those were the people As Attorney General in California, she put black people in jail in record numbers. In California, black folks make up 6% of the population, but make up 29% of the incarcerated population. That's what Kamala Harris did. And she has the balls now to pretend that she cares about minority communities. She's a fucking racist. This is leftist slop. This is John Kerry, who on the day that Putin invaded the Ukraine and began uh, his massacre, he said that he hoped that Putin would, quote, continue to help us to stay on track with respect to what we need to do for the climate. This is what this arrogant, this fake accent, this private plane flying, uh, this kept husband jackass said? That's what he was concerned about? Putin is slaughtering civilians, and he's concerned about the climate? That's what he cares about, the climate. This is leftism. It's one useless moron after another. Inflation is at a 40-year high. The stock market had its worst year in 20 years. People's retirements are disappearing. And while Americans are grappling with having to pay for 2 million illegals that Joe Biden allowed in, who are helping to raise crime in every big city in America, Biden's raising taxes. He's giving the Ukraine $50 billion, and, and he's uh, had this program It's coming into effect now that's going to cost us $400 billion to forgive college loans. Who is he forgiving them for? Upwardly white mobile people college loan recipients. Those are mostly white. And Kamala Harris is still concerned about equity. You elected this shit. You deserve this shit. Suffer with it now. Man, I'm fired up today. Now, I have to do a a quick word on Jeff Bezos. He's the liberal that Republicans just love to hate. Well, let me tell you something. They shouldn't. He grew up poor. Did you know that? His parents were 19 and 17 years old when he was born. From that very humble beginning, somehow he managed to graduate as valedictorian of his high school. He then graduated summa cum laude from Princeton and created, I don't know, the greatest company that this planet may ever have seen, Amazon. What do you do without Amazon? How do you live without Amazon right now? Even during the pandemic, they delivered. He started it from nothing. Does that sound like John Kerry? Does that sound like Kamala Harris? Does that sound like Joe Biden? No, this guy's a capitalist who worked his ass off, and he's extremely talented. Well, after 25 years of marriage, he decided he wanted to be happy, and he divorced his wife, and instantly she became the richest woman on the planet. From the stock that he owned, from his business that he created, his work, from the sweat of his brow. Now, naturally, after the divorce, he kept his mouth shut and he went on with his life. Why? Because he just wanted to be happy. He didn't care anymore. He found a new girlfriend who, and I'm going to be generous now, seems to be completely the opposite of his ex-wife. Take a look at the two of them, all right? Take a look at Lauren Sanchez. She flies helicopters. She works. She was married to an NFL Hall of Famer. And now Jeff Bezos has her, and he's having fun. He's lifting weights. He's flying into space. He doesn't want any trouble. He just wants to live the rest of his life happy. Well, what did his ex do? She couldn't keep her mouth shut, of course. She had to tell the world she was going to give her wealth away. She couldn't do it privately. No, had to be publicly. We have to have a website so you can see me giving all my money away, giving, me all, giving away all the money that my husband, ex-husband, earned. This is the quote that's on her website. Last year, I pledged to give the majority, now it's just the majority, of my wealth back to the society that helped generate it, to do it thoughtfully, to get started soon, and to keep it until the safe is empty. There's no question in my mind that anyone's personal wealth is the product of a collective effort and of social structures which present opportunities to some people and obstacles to countless others. Yeah. Being born to a 17-year-old and a 19-year-old and being dirt poor. Yeah. Yeah. Jeff Bezos had so much opportunity. She then goes ahead and marries the science teacher at her kid's school and then moves her kids in with them. I'm sure that wasn't awkward at all, seeing your fucking science teacher in the hallway on the way to the bathroom in the morning. <laughs> so she marries a science teacher, claiming that she's going to give away the majority of her wealth. Tell me that is not an fu to Jeff Bezos, to show the world how different you are than him. He's a capitalist pig, not me. I care about the Cheren. Meanwhile, they lasted one year. One year. Now, I don't know Jeff Bezos at all. But I can tell you that he and Lauren Sanchez, they're laughing their asses off right now. I'm going to take a break right now. We're going to get back to the Howie Krantz, Michael Burnett trial. Probably the craziest case I've ever been involved in, soup to nuts. Jeffrey Lickman, Beyond the Legal Limit, back in a second. I'm back, and we're going to talk about the Howie Krantz case. And this occurred decades ago, one of the hundreds that I worked on with Jerry Shargell, one of over a dozen, I suppose, I tried with him when I was working for him. It was sometime in 1995 when I was working for Jerry for about two years then. I was 29 at the time, and we got a call from a young man. He and his sister wanted to come in and hire Jerry on a federal murder-for-hire case. Now, this wasn't so unusual, to have the meeting and we met them and it was a young man in his 20s named uh, Michael Krantz and his sister, two exceedingly normal young people who had an insane story to tell. As I said, I was 29 at the time and they were about, about my age, maybe a little bit younger. Two Jewish kids who grew up in New York City and at least from the outside, they seemed just like me. They told us that their father, Howie Krantz, was in prison in the federal lockup in Brooklyn, the MDC, and he was charged with murder for hire. And it, it was just jarring, I remember, to hear this coming from two kids that I could have grown up with. They could have been me. And to make it even crazier, their father was a 67-year-old attorney in New York City, an entertainment lawyer. And apparently he had conspired, at least what they were charging him with, conspired with a fellow named Michael Burnett, who had been in a state prison in Brooklyn, charged with bank fraud in a Staten Island case. So Michael Burnett was in a state prison charged with a Staten Island bank fraud case, check kiting scheme. Now, follow me here. Krantz was charged in a federal murder-for-hire case with Burnett, and he was also charged with an actual killer in the murder-for-hire scheme, a fellow named Stephen Brown. And the plot was allegedly uh, borne by Burnett to kill the witness against him in the bank fraud case in Staten Island. The witness was a former bank teller, a 32-year-old single mother named Valerie Vassell, and she had supposedly tried to help Burnett deposit millions of dollars of bad checks into the Richmond County Savings Bank. But they got caught, and she cooperated with the state authorities. At the time, she identified Burnett as the man who put her up to depositing these fake checks, and at this point, she was working as a nurse's aide. She lived with her 13-year-old son in the projects of Staten Island. Now, the Staten Island DA, which was prosecuting Burnett for this bank fraud, did not put Valerie Vassell into any kind of witness protection situation. They didn't even move her from her home. There was no effort made to protect this woman. And why should they have? They, 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 they just had some old, fat dude charged with bank fraud. What reason would they have needed to protect her? Well, what the DA claimed they didn't know about Michael Burnett was that he was actually Michael Raymond. He received the new name after cooperating for decades with state and federal authorities, each time after getting arrested for something. His birth name was actually Michael Rafelowitz, and his family changed it to Raymond. And it wasn't just frauds that Burnett had been charged with over the years. He had been the target of murder investigations in Florida, in New York, and in the Midwest over the years. And he was linked to, but not charged with, the death and disappearance of six associates of his and investors with him. One was his ex-girlfriend who he swindled, swindled out of money. He was actually charged with her murder. A woman named Adelaide Stiles, but the case was dismissed in Florida 10 days before the trial. Why? Because the main witness recanted his statement, his statement that he and another guy had committed the murder at the behest of Burnett. But somehow none of this information found its way to the Staten Island DA, and Valerie Vassell continued living in the same small apartment in the projects with her young son. Nice, right? So while sitting in jail in the Brooklyn House of Detention, Burnett plots Valerie's murder, according to the charges. He then enlisted the help of a black killer inmate named Irving Jones. He wanted this inmate's gang members to kill Valerie. And he explained, at least according to uh, the witnesses, why couldn't Burnett dispatch some of his own killers? Because it's not like he hadn't done this before. He claimed, according to Irving Jones, who began cooperating with the feds, that his people were all white and it would arouse suspicion if a bunch of white dudes showed up in the projects looking for Valerie Vassell. So Jones's black gang members would have to do the job. Jones was to be paid $100,000 for the hit. But how would the information needed to kill Valerie get from the prison to the outside world, to the hitmen? You needed somebody as a go-between who could visit Burnett in prison. Couldn't do it over the phones, right? And that's where Howie Krantz comes into the picture. Krantz was an entertainment lawyer, as I said, and was alleged to be a longtime criminal associate and attorney of Burnett's. And suspected of being involved in Burnett's plots and even perhaps some of the murders he was investigated for, but never charged. And according to the present charges, Krantz visited Michael Burnett at the Brooklyn House in 1994. Burnett passed a piece of paper to Kranz during their meeting in the attorney-client room, because that's where they were able to meet, because Crans was an attorney. On the piece of paper, it was Valerie Vassell's name and address. A few weeks later, Valerie Vassell was shot to death in her apartment, in front of her son, who was 13 years old at the time. Now, the killer black gang leader inside prison who Burnett had hired to actually find the real killers, the actual killers on the outside, But he didn't want to tell them, uh, this Irving Jones, didn't want to tell his killers who the murder was for, what the reason was they were going to kill Valerie Vassell. And since his gang uh, that he contacted on the outside specialized in ripping off drug dealers, the actual killers were told that Valerie and her boyfriend were big time drug dealers. So the killers, if you can believe, did a push-in into her apartment. That means they rang the doorbell. And then when she went to uh, go answer it, they pushed their way in. They tied her up, and they tortured her with a stun gun, trying to find out where the drugs were. There's only one problem. I mean, they thought once they got the stash, then they would kill her. The only one problem is that there was no stash. And the killers believed her. Finally, they realized they were torturing her so much. And they left. Still. The Staten Island DA did not move to protect her. Ten days later, they killed her. They came back. And Howie Kranz was accused of providing the killer's Valerie's address, the gun that was used to kill her, and the money to pay for it. Now, this was the time before the Internet was really a big thing. This was early 90s, and it wasn't as populated with historical information going back decades as it is now. So while we were aware at the time when we got hired that Burnett had a past where he helped the government and they kept him out of jail to commit crimes and to kill people, we had no idea of the full extent of it. It was just so much. And I'll go into that in a bit. So Jerry and I went to go see Howie Kranz in prison. He was at the MDC in Brooklyn, and it was like seeing a Borscht Belt comedian, which in fact he was as a younger man, he told us numerous times. He was old, uh, he was balding uh, with uh, white hair. He looked, when I think back on it, he looked very much like Larry David. He was like an old Jewish guy, and he looked like an accountant, and in fact he was an entertainment lawyer. But he was different in one way. He was so cranky and mad, and he was always complaining. I mean, it's a tough place to be. He couldn't told us that he couldn't take a shit in peace. He couldn't go to his refrigerator. He always had a quip, very quippy. He was very quippy. He didn't claim that he was just innocent, I remember, because I wrote this down. He said he was very fucking innocent. And I had to visit him multiple times a, a, a week, and it got exhausting listening to what I remember. I look back on it. It's been decades. Anyway, he had a lawyer at the time who he wasn't happy with. The prior lawyer had made a bail application and it had been denied. So Howie wanted a new lawyer, which is what he told us. He hired Jerry. And I remember thinking at the time, enough with the jokes. There was always quip, 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 quip. The quips weren't funny. Although there was one that he told us, one. And 27 years later, it still makes me laugh. I'm going to get into it in a bit. I'm not going to tell you now. This is like the big finish. I'm going to hold it over your heads. And as I mentioned last week, I took contemporaneous notes at the time for some reason. Back from the 90s, 1995, I had written an entry to myself for that prison visit with the following words, quote, Howie, I hate to tell you, but for an accused killer facing life in prison, you're a shitty comedian. You want to make me laugh? Tell me about ripping some guy's eyeballs out with silverware. Now, that line was very funny in 1995, I swear. For some reason, it doesn't quite seem as funny now. Now, the first thing we did was try to make another bail application for Howie. The problem with making a new bail application was twofold. One is that he already lost an application and we had no new facts to present to the judge who had denied the first application. You can't just go back and ask for bail without changing something up. So what we did have is we had more property to post for bail. It was $1.1 million in property. But it wasn't really new facts we were presenting to to convince the judge that Howie was not either a flight risk or a danger to the community. It was just a better bail application with better writing and, and letters from family and people from the community. And this occurred at a time before I was trying cases. I was only a lawyer for a few years. But I was a really good lawyer. I was really a harder worker than I was perhaps a good legal writer. But for a bail application, I was stellar. I mean, no stone was left unturned. And I had succeeded in bail applications, I remember, for one client on the sixth time after prior lawyers had failed five times before I'd still managed to get the defendant out. So I felt we had a shot. And Jerry obviously was a great lawyer, and if any argument needed to be had, uh, he would win the argument. But there was a second problem with the bail application, as I wrote in my contemporaneous notes from the day of the bail application, which – and I described what occurred. I actually wrote that day of the bail application. Quote, Today's the bail hearing. We don't expect much, especially since, did I mention this previously? The judge is an ex-federal prosecutor who unsuccessfully tried to get Jerry indicted for tax evasion, obstruction of justice, buggery, etc., etc. Now, this is what I'm adding. I'm just letting you know, kind listeners, what I meant by this. The judge was John Gleason. This was the John Gotti senior prosecutor who had Jerry tossed off Gotti's final trial for a conflict of interest. He ended up investigating Jerry for years, tried to indict him. Gleason had just been appointed to the bench in late 1994. I believe that the Howie Kranz michael Burnett case was actually his first criminal trial as a judge that he presided over. So that was kind of the second big problem uh, that I'm referring to. Now, back to my notes. I tell Jerry to get ready to beg and grovel for Howie's bail and bring up as many times as possible the two triple bypass operations that Howie had undergone. At 9 a.m. sharp, the judge bounds onto the bench and quickly announces that upon his review of our papers, he decided to grant our application for bail. We are shocked. Howie is going home. The judge then notes that Howie will be on house arrest, which means he can't leave his home except to see his lawyer, doctor, or his place of worship. Considering the charges in this case were ecstatic— I think to myself that Howie will finally get that private shit away from all the crazy inmates he was housed with. The prosecutor is really pissed. He thought he had a lock. After all, what's worse than killing a government witness? He rails at the judge, claiming that if Howie was involved in the murder of a witness in a bullshit bank fraud case, what will stop him from killing a witness in this murder case? Good point, pal, but you're fucked. This one's over. The prosecutor won't give up, though. Quote, judge, he pleads, he's a bad man. We have information that he's been involved in many crimes over the years. Jerry and I stare straight ahead at the judge, politely letting the prosecutor continue his his bleedings to no avail. Finally, he makes a last gasp. Quote, judge, he claims, we think Krantz may have been involved in other murders as well over the years. All of a sudden, Jerry and I hear the following. You're a lying scumbag. Jerry and I freeze. That voice must be coming from inside our heads. It can't possibly be Howie, can it? You're a goddamn asshole liar. It is Howie. And now he's being dragged, face purple, contorted from the courtroom. We're stunned. The judge, however, is firmly in control as he announces that Howie has forfeited his right to be present any longer for the court appearance, and he's also forfeited his right to bail. Quote, if your client can't act like the attorney that he once was, the judge directs, at least tell him to act like a defendant. Gleason was right. Jerry starts begging like a seal in an attempt at damage control. The judge half-heartedly buys it and agrees to postpone any decision on the bail until next week, but there's no question that Howie is going nowhere. We're not winning this motion. After the appearance, we try in vain to visit Howie in the holding cell, which is adjacent to the courtroom, but the marshals claim that he's already been taken to another holding cell in the basement of the courthouse. Apparently, the marshal didn't want to run the risk that Howie's screams might be heard inside his sainted courtroom. So much disrespect that had occurred in the court already, couldn't possibly handle any more. We had enough, though, Jerry and I, by now, because all the work that I had done on bail was now flushed down the toilet. We leave the courtroom and attempt to head back to our office, but Howie's family wants an explanation. Of course, there's nothing to explain. It's curtains for Howie on the bail issue, and Jerry says as much politely. He punctuates his standard, we'll try our best speech with Jeff will call you tomorrow, which roughly translates to leave me alone. I've had enough Krantz people today. We jump into a cab and laugh all the way back to the office. Jerry play acts the entire episode repeatedly, complete with the actual voices over and over. The highlight, of course, is his high-pitched, grumpy old man screech of, Goddamn asshole liar. For the next two weeks, I hear this line screamed from Jerry's office as he delights yet another excited listener with the best courtroom scene he claims that he's ever witnessed. Now, let's get back to the present. It was that crazy and that funny in retrospect. It was. Sometimes you have to laugh at, at what you see or else it's going to make you nuts. It didn't change our effort, efforts or desire to win. I had spent, I don't know, 50, 60 hours on that bail motion, and we had won it in a huge upset. And then we lost it through no fault of our own. Just a client who just couldn't control himself. He had no self-control despite having so much to lose. Exactly the reason why he couldn't be trusted with bail. I remember going to see Howie a day or two later in jail, and he had the balls to say to me, that prick judge wasn't granting me bail anyway. I got pissed and I told him, we got bail. You won. And then you fucked it up. Don't blame Gleason. I wish I could have blamed the judge. I didn't like him. But no, there was just no no way this time. Now, I'm going to go into what we didn't know about Michael Burnett, also known as Michael Raymond. Pay attention to this part. It's complicated. In the 1950s, he had gotten fired from a couple of jobs and investment firms for stealing money. Eventually, he was charged with stealing from clients when he'd been a stockbroker. From 1957 to 61, he was in prison twice. In 1964, he was arrested in Manhattan for an illegal transfer of stocks to a Swiss bank account. Facing 20 years in prison, Michael Raymond pleaded guilty to a reduced charge of wire fraud and offered his cooperation to the government. His federal sentence, it was postponed. He was now an informer, and his information enabled Chicago authorities to recover paintings that had been stolen from the Milwaukee Art Institute and several hundred thousand dollars in stolen securities. But as typical of Raymond, he was committing crimes behind the FBI's back. In February of 1966, he was again arrested by detectives from the Manhattan DA's office for buying stolen securities. He was confronted again with more Jail, and he decided to become an informer for the Manhattan DA's office. Over the next several years, Raymond helped recover some $9 million in stolen securities. According to the prosecutor who was in charge of him, who ran him at the time, that's what they call it, Raymond would, quote, only produce if you caught him red-handed or gave him money. He always thought he was smarter than anyone else, and nine times out of 10, he was. In 1970, Raymond received a four-year prison term in Chicago for trying to buy two small Midwestern banks with stolen treasury notes. Noting Raymond's criminal history and record, good record as an informant, a very troubled federal judge stated that Raymond's situation was, quote, a correctional nightmare in which it made no sense to either give him a lengthy sentence or to praise him. Raymond ended up serving no more than two years, excuse me, no more than two months on that four year sentence. The next year in 1971, the Senate Subcommittee on Investigations, headed by Senator John McClellan, was holding hearings on organized crime and stolen securities. Raymond was presented as a star informer to the committee. His information had he provided they claimed was useful. He wore a hood when he testified so his face wouldn't be seen, and he used the alias George White. Raymond told the committee stories of mafia victims planted like potatoes in the fields of New Jersey. He also named names and deals, said that he had bribed several state judges, and admitted that he had not filed an income tax return for 16 years. Senator Charles Percy of Illinois was so impressed with Raymond that he recommended him for a job at the New York Stock Exchange to protect investors. Can you imagine? Percy stated, I consider this witness to be one of the most valuable and helpful witnesses this subcommittee has ever had before it. Percy asked Raymond what he was going to do with his life because they were just about to wipe out 18 years of his crimes because he helped them. That's when they gave him a new name and relocated him. Raymond said he didn't know, but it would not be anything illegal. He ended up passing on the stock exchange job, and instead he asked to be placed, as I said, in the witness protection program, and he was given a new name, Michael Burnett, and moved to Florida. The government gave him $1,500 a month. Keep in mind, this is like 1970. $1,500 a month. I mean, a Cadillac cost like $7,000 then they gave him $1,500 a month plus $50,000 for job assistance, according to records of the Marshal Service. It also paid, they paid $25,000 to a Robert E. Dell, an Englishman who had been arrested with Raymond in 1966 and then basically was his gopher. Dell was given a new name too, Robert Johnstone. In November 1972, Burnett, as he was known now, he founded a corporation called Salinas Corporation, a company which attempted to develop a charcoal substitute. The next fall, he met a Max Boussard, a Florida accountant who had been placed on probation eight years earlier for embezzling funds from the Broward County Sheriff's Office. Michael Raymond and Robert Dell, now known as Michael Burnett and Robert Johnstone, moved into the guest house of Bussard's home in Boca Raton. And Bussard, on behalf of Salinas, the corporation, took out tens of thousands of dollars in bank loans that were secured by union carbide stock and treasury notes. Guess what? That were later found to be counterfeit or stolen. As Bussard got deeper in with Burnett, Burnett reemerged as an informer, pl- providing evidence to convict two men in a scheme to steal blank checks from the L.A. City Treasury and forge sums in the millions of dollars. Burnett sought a reward of $125,000 for making the case, but instead was paid $45,000. On May 21, 1974, he contacted the FBI in Miami and supplied information that led to the arrest of two men in New York in connection with stolen treasury notes. He also linked Max Bassard to them. He was already ratting on Bassard, double crossing him. The FBI arranged to interview Bassard two days later. They wanted to hear his end of the story. According to Bassard's wife, he had information, handwritten notes that he had left with her, that the phony Union Carbide stock certificates and treasury notes that he used to take out loans for Burnett's company, well, Burnett had provided them to Bassard. But instead of meeting with the FBI, Bassard left instead. He just missed the scheduled meeting. He went to Chicago to meet Michael Burnett. He was brought to the motel, to a motel there, by a man who had done time with Burnett and was his friend. A few days later, Bassard called his wife and said he'd be returning to Miami the next afternoon. She never heard from him again. According to an FBI report that I've read, Burnett and a giant bodyguard visited Mrs. Bassard the next evening in Boca Raton and cursed her out repeatedly when she demanded to know where her husband was. Bussard's 17-year-old stepson grabbed Burnett and asked what he had done with his father, and the bodyguard pulled out a gun and pointed it as th- at the kid's head. When Bussard's wife went to the FBI and offered the incriminating notes that her husband had left about Burnett and asked them to help find her husband, the agent who spoke to them, and I'm quoting Bussard's daughter who was present, quote, the agent acted like it was a bunch of hogwash. He was almost joking about it. The FBI never found Bassard and he was presumed dead. In 1975, Raymond, now Michael Burnett, was introduced to a retired Fort Lauderdale Society columnist named Adelaide Stiles. The woman who introduced Burnett to Stiles later admitted it that she did it as a con. It was an effort for Burnett to defraud Stiles of the money, and she was paid $8,000 by Burnett to introduce him to Adelaide Stiles, who was an, an older woman. He swept her off her feet and she fell madly in love, and she loaned him tens of thousands of dollars. She was scheduled to take a trip to Europe to meet some friends there, but she never made it there. A convict told law enforcement that Burnett had bragged about killing Stiles, but they needed a body in order to charge him. Instead, her suitcase was found in the Florida Keys by an off-duty cop who was diving. The suitcase was turned over to the local sheriff. But before the Fort Lauderdale police could come to pick it up, Somehow, the suitcase mysteriously disappeared. They had to drop the investigation when Burnett refused to speak to them. During the following years, 1976 and 77, there were two other disappearances in which Burnett was suspected. One was a fellow named Charles DeStefano, a Long Island security salesman, believed to have misled a retired executive into depositing a million dollars of bearer bonds in an offshore trading company headed by Burnett. In 1976, a lawyer for DiStefano contacted New York Attorney General and said that DiStefano agreed to come to New York for questioning and wanted to talk about Burnett. He never showed up. After a brief inquiry during which Burnett said he knew nothing of Stefano's whereabouts, this disappearance of Stefano was all but forgotten by authorities. The other disappearance was that of a woman named Ann Sessa. She was a 63-year-old widow who met Burnett in October of 1976 at a barbecue at his Fort Lauderdale home. Two months later, she withdrew $165,000 worth of securities and flew to Switzerland with Burnett. When she returned in late January 77, she told friends she was going to the Caribbean with him. However, three months later, police found Mrs. Sessa's Lincoln Continental in the same Miami airport parking lot where Max Bussard had left his car in 1974, never to be seen again. The parking stub for Sessa showed that the car had been there since February 3rd, but no airline had a record of carrying Mrs. Sessa anywhere. Burnett said he had nothing to do with it and wouldn't speak to the FBI. The FBI learned that one of Mrs. Sessa's stock certificates had been sold in Switzerland for $26,000 after she had parked her car at the airport and vanished. The proceeds were deposited into a Liechtenstein account of Burnett's, but the FBI was told that Mrs. Sessa had personally approved the transaction in Switzerland, so they closed her investigation. Police in Florida, however, have long believed that if anybody approved this stock sale, it was an imposter of Sessa. She was never heard from again. On February 1, 1979, Burnett was arrested in New York for swindling a group of Austrian businessmen out of $1 million. He was released on $200,000 bail, and trial was set for just a couple of months later, April 2nd. But on that day, using a passport he had obtained in a fake name, he flew to Switzerland to consummate a $5 million Swiss bank loan secured by what the FBI described as counterfeit blue chips or stolen securities. A few months later, they found them by the, the FBI found them in the Bahamas. In a telex at the time, the FBI in New York noted Burnett's long and infamous criminal history and described him as the prime suspect in three homicides which took place in Florida. When he was returned to New York, however, Burnett quickly made another deal, this time with the feds. After pleading guilty to charges of both swindling uh, that he did and also for the stealing the bonds that could have netted him as much as 25 years in jail, he was sentenced to just 13 years and again became an informer. As an informer, he was routinely taken out of prison to meet with the FBI, where they had a wire put on him in an effort to make cases for the feds. Sometimes while he was supposedly serving his sentence, he went to restaurants where he pretended he was in the market for buying stolen securities. His undercover work led to the prosecution of at least three people and the recovery of $5.5 million in stolen securities. But he declined to take part in the FBI operation aimed at the reputed head of organized crime in Chicago. He, he really wasn't dumb. The FBI and, and the U.S. Attorney's Office let him get away with it, they let him cooperate on what he chose to cooperate on instead of everything. In the spring of 1980, Burnett petitioned to have his sentence reduced, arguing that he had, quote, carried out various dangerous assignments of substantial benefit to society and had become truly rehabilitated. The federal judge reduced his sentence from 13 years to eight years. That November, Burnett told the FBI that Howie Krantz, one of his lawyers, had recently visited him in jail, along with a fellow named William Callahan, who Burnett knew to be under investigation for embezzling millions of dollars from the ARC electrical construction company in New York. Callahan was the executive vice president of ARC. Burnett told his FBI contact that Callahan had deposited ARC funds in Swiss bank accounts and wanted Burnett's help in moving a million dollars back into the United States. Burnett offered to send Callahan anywhere that the FBI wanted, but they felt they had enough evidence against Callahan and they turned Burnett down. Meanwhile, Callahan and a companion, a young female dancer, arrived in Chicago in March of 1981. On March 5, 1981, the couple arrived in Chicago and registered under fake names at the Continental Plaza Hotel. A couple weeks later, their bodies were found in a Wisconsin nature preserve an hour away. They were lying face up in the grass, fully clothed, not robbed of expensive jewelry or cash. Both had been shot three times in the back of the head. The FBI told Wisconsin authorities about Burnett's involvement with the Callahans and and the girlfriend and his attempts to cooperate against Callahan. They had found that many of the places where Callahan had traveled after the attempted cooperation, including St. Vincent's, were favorites of Burnett's. So in their mind, it seemed that Burnett was still pulling Callahan's strings for some reason. They don't know why. Three agencies investigated the Callahan murders in the early 80s. The FBI, the Kenosha County Sheriff's Office in Wisconsin, and the Manhattan DA's office, which was investigating the money that Callahan had stolen from his employer. Burnett was either uh, believed to be the shooter or the contractor of the murders, and that the calls that were made to Callahan at the Chicago Hotel were from the home of the fellow, his, Burnett's old friend, who had taken Bessard years earlier to Chicago to meet Burnett. Instead of meeting with the FBI, that man who had done time with Burnett, as I said, was his friend. There was just too much circumstantial evidence in uh, law enforcement's minds. Howard Krantz was confronted with the evidence on these murders, but eventually the FBI and the state authorities dropped it. Burnett ended up serving just four and a half years of the 13-year sentence, which was reduced to eight. When the United States Parole Commission made its decision to release him, it stated that it had no information concerning the Florida disappearances or the Wisconsin murders. Quote, obviously, we should know if someone is suspected of murder, said a senior commission official. It could influence our decision. They were never told of Burnett's possible involvement in in all these murders by the feds for some reason. Incredibly, Burnett was allowed to continue to cooperate with the federal and state authorities after this. In 1984, he and a former jailhouse inmate of Burnett's, we were arrested sitting in a van outside a Nashville home. The FBI and the police closed in and arrested them. Among the weapons inside the van was a loaded machine gun equipped with a silencer. According to a third co-conspirator named Frazier, they planned to burglarize the home of a Nashville insurance executive where Frazier's mother was a maid. After a few dry runs on the executive's home, Frazier said he got scared, went to the FBI, and informed on Burnett. They paid him $2,500 for his work. That's when the FBI and the police moved in and they arrested Burnett and his co-conspirator in the van. While in the police car, Burnett tried to cut another deal. This time he had information on bribery in Chicago in attempts to win lucrative contracts to collect overdue parking tickets and water and sewage bills in Chicago. But the people bribed would have to be politicians to give out the contract, so this was potentially something big. The president of the company was told by Howard Krantz that Michael Burnett could be useful to him. Burnett was hired, and the president admitted to Burnett that he'd been paying bribes for years in New York and Chicago to politicians. The bribes worked in Chicago, and the company that Burnett worked for was awarded a, a water and sewage bill collection contract in Chicago. The FBI agreed to use him despite all the murders he was alleged to have committed. Despite all the crimes that he had committed, they ended up putting him into this fancy apartment with tapped phone lines and hidden cameras where Burnett bribed dozens of people. He wore a body wire for the FBI for 18 months in 1984 and 85. He was recording these bribe-seeking public officials and city influence peddlers. And it was crazy. This was in New York and Chicago. And hundreds of tapes were made and it laid the foundation for 15 indictments in Chicago and provided the basis for a dozen successful prosecutions in New York. When the president of the company Burnett worked for was confronted with the tapes, he flipped as well. An assistant to the mayor of Chicago, Howard Washington, was indicted for taking bribes. The clerk of the court of the Cook County Circuit Court was indicted for taking bribes. Twenty Chicago officials were indicted for taking bribes. The fallout from the investigation and the prosecution was enormous. I remember this as a kid. In New York, Queensborough President Donald Manis, aware that he was implicated in this and about to be indicted, He killed himself. He plunged a knife into his heart. I remember. Stanley Friedman, the Bronx Democratic leader, was tried and convicted. All from Burnett. Here's an irony. Stanley Friedman was represented by Jerry Shargill. When Burnett was finally sentenced in Nashville for the weapons charge, he received just 40 months in jail. Why? It was after then-U.S. attorney Rudy Giuliani wrote a letter to the Nashville sentencing judge praising Burnett's cooperation. Before Burnett was released, his fellow Fraser, who had cooperated against him in the Nashville insurance salesman burglary case, he told authorities that Burnett had hired him to kill Adelaide Stiles in Florida. But as I said earlier, 10 days before the trial was set to begin, he was finally charged with it, Frazier, the cooperator, recanted, and Burnett was released in 1989. He continued to commit crimes. He was in the midst of stealing $100 million from two German bankers and got involved in the bank fraud in Staten Island with uh, Valerie Vassell that he enlisted. He believed he would make $10 million from the fraud in Staten Island. Vassell was killed in 1993, but the police got a break on her murder in 1995 when a snitch claimed that he knew the names of the shooters of Valerie Vassell. One of the shooters was arrested, and he began giving up the other people involved, and that included Burnett and Krantz. Finally, when Burnett was arrested on the Valerie Vassell murder charge, he was turned down when he tried to cooperate again. Finally, they turned him down. Now, this is a pretty incredible story so far, how the FBI allowed Michael Burnett to get out of jail time and time again to cooperate with them, even as the bodies were piling up, and how they neglected to tell the Staten Island DA that the man they had in jail for a bank fraud was incredibly dangerous and had a history of making witnesses against him disappear. And they did nothing as Valerie Vassell was whacked in broad daylight from a contract from their cooperator, Michael Burnett. And as I said, this is a story that has not seen the light of day in decades until this podcast. Now, let me take you back to the trial in that case. I'm going to take you back to the present, or not, not exactly the present, but 1996. Besides Burnett and Krantz, the third defendant on trial was one of the shooters named Stephen Brown. He had tried to cooperate against Burnett and Krantz. He was debriefed, but then reneged. He was a young gang member. And if you can believe, I remember we shared the same birthday. I tend to get along with killers really, really well. So the truth is, we hit it off incredibly well. I I have nothing in common with the guy, obviously, but we hit it off. But you know who I got along with the most out of anybody in that case? Michael Burnett. I didn't know more than 10% of the information I just told you a few minutes ago about his past. Not that it would have made a difference for me. He was older. He was in his 60s. He was seemingly harmless, overweight, balding, a very deliberate speaker. And for some reason, he got a kick out of me. I was 29 years old. Two court-appointed lawyers were representing Burnett and Steve Brown, and there is a very wide range of skill sets in court-appointed lawyers. The lawyers you get assigned uh, when you can't afford counsel. Steve Brown had a really good one, I remember, a fellow named Phil Kadowitz. Great sense of humor, a very tall guy, lanky, thin. He looked and walked like the Pink Panther to me. Think about that in your head. And the guy always had a wisecrack ready to go, like a, a pun or a joke, a very funny dude and a really good trial lawyer. And he was getting paid next to nothing for this case, but he didn't care. He worked hard. He had an impossible client, Steve Brown, who didn't trust Phil at all. And as I said, for some reason, Steve trusted me and I sat on one side of him with Phil on the other. Um, but he hated Phil. And during the trial, Phil actually asked me to change seats so that I would be between he and Steve. He just couldn't take it anymore. And I agreed. <clears throat> they weren't getting along and it was frustrating for me because Phil was a big help at the trial. And I tried to convince Steve that Phil was a good lawyer. He just wouldn't have it. Barnett did not have it so lucky. Uh, hilariously, they saddled him with a lawyer who was just completely bizarre an older fellow, now granted he probably was my age now, but back then he was certainly older, a fellow named Julius Wasserstein. Really, really nice guy, but he was just too weird for a case and a client like this. He was intellectually very smart, but had zero common sense, zero. Which is a problem if you're a criminal defense lawyer. He had a beard and he looked like this nutty professor, and he meant well. The guy didn't have a bad bone on his body, but he just couldn't handle this really ugly case or a guy as brilliant and street-smart as as Michael Burnett. He was completely out of his element. The case wasn't very strong at the start. They had the other shooter as a witness. They had some taped conversations between Krantz and the relatives of one of the shooters about payments. The relative was cooperating for law enforcement. And they had some circumstantial evidence, but nothing that was that overwhelming. And we had a huge amount of discovery in this case. And Jerry and I were desperate to get this, this case to trial, Why? Because we didn't want anybody else to flip. You want to get rid of the case. If there's not a lot of evidence, the quicker you can get the trial, the better so they don't make more evidence. And we wanted to make sure that the gang leader who was in prison, that he wouldn't flip and anybody else. We had a trial date and we were excited because we actually thought we could win this case. And then Julius did the first incredibly stupid thing. He tells us that Burnett has bad lighting in the special housing unit in the prison that he's in in Manhattan. Actually, the same place where they kept El Chapo. And he couldn't read the discovery because the lights weren't bright enough. He's going to ask the judge for an adjournment. And Jerry and I, we begged him not to do so. We knew they'd flip more witnesses in the the interim. Now, I was 30 years old at the time, but I had common sense for this work. And it doesn't make a difference if you're 30, if you're 60, if you don't have common sense, you don't have common sense. And Julius was so stubborn. He wanted to do the right thing by Burnett. And in retrospect, I respect his sentiment, but this is, is, is work that is for people that can think quickly and intelligently and can see down the field. Jerry and I saw it in the exact same way, and I knew we were right. Who cares if Burnett couldn't read every piece of paper? 99% of it was meaningless. A few more rats would sink him if we uh, delayed the trial. The case was so weak that the two prosecutors on it, their names were Jody Avergon and Margaret Giordano. They were wonderful in the case, and are, they're fantastic lawyers today. They offered us five years for Howie as a plea offer. This is a guy who supplied the gun and the address to the killers that put a bullet into the head of Valerie Vassil, a government witness. Five years was the offer. And he'd already been in trial for a year. He would have gotten out in less than four years. We go to visit him with the news. We figure the case is done. We're going to plead this guy out. We felt he had to take it. It was too good to pass up. But Howie had heart issues, and he didn't think he'd live long in prison. When turning down the five-year plea offer, his exact words to us were, and I have this written down as a contemporaneous note from 1996, tell her to take those five years and shove it up her cunt. If he lost the trial, it was mandatory life in prison. Howie was in his late 60s, wasn't physically well, and he seemed pretty resolute. Jerry and I just looked at each other like, this guy is insane. Julius went to Judge Gleason over our objections to ask for the adjournment. I recall Gleason being incredulous at the request, but he gave it to him. Hey, you want it? You got it. The trial would be in six months or so, and of course, naturally, during that interim period, the government flipped three more cooperators, including the other shooter that was against our clients, dooming the case. Julius was unrepentant. The Constitution, he told us, required that Burnett get to see the evidence against him. He talked to us like he was a law professor. We looked at him like he was just an idiot. Just like such a stupid move. How could you not see this coming? I remember thinking, this is before I was trying cases. I remember thinking, I don't know what I'm doing, but my God, I'm smarter than this guy. Now, the trial had as its sole charge the murder of the government witness. So you can understand, the government wanted an anonymous jury. They wanted the defense to not have the names of any of the jurors for fear that the defendants would try to contact them in order to fix them, or maybe even kill jurors. They made the motion for the uh, anonymous and partially sequestered jury, and they won it. The jury would be freaked out enough knowing that the defendants were charged with killing the government witness. They surely didn't want to have to worry that Michael Burnett would be sending killers to their homes. And as the trial started, it was just like this motley crew. Steve Brown wanted to kill Phil Katowicz. Uh, Howie Kranz's face would turn purple in anger three times a day. He claimed the government was trying to screw him at every turn because he was so fucking innocent. And Michael Burnett acted like uh, the voice of reason. He was like the Buddha just sitting there quietly. You could tell, and I look back on it now, he was resigned to losing. He knew Michael Burnett knew that he had Julius Wasserstein, that this was the end of the line for him. And he was a prince during the trial. So we're now a few days into the trial. And I noticed that uh, the juror on the, I still remember this. This is 1996. So this is 26 years ago. I remember it like it was yesterday. I noticed that the juror on the bottom right of the jury box is doing all he can to avoid looking at the defense lawyers. He's turning his chair to the left. So he's staring out the window. Every time we look over at him, he quickly turns away from us. And you have to read the jury. You have to see who's with you or who's against you based on the evidence, based on what you're saying, because you want to play to those people. So it's important also that the jury doesn't hate us because they're the ones that are going to be voting guilty or innocent. I notice this is happening and I tell Jerry and he sees it too. He looked, he noticed it too. We alert Judge Gleason. remember Jerry looking at me like, are you sure? I said, look. I said, go look over at the juror, see what happens. He sees it. We alert Judge Gleason. The judge sends the jury out, but keeps that one juror, brings him into his chambers because he doesn't want to scare him. He doesn't want to do it in open court, brings him into his chambers alone with a court reporter. He then comes out and calls us the sidebar. He says the following, Mr. Wasserstein, are you drawing pictures of the jury? The juror can see your pad and can see you drawing their faces. Are you seriously not aware that the jury here is anonymous? Wasserstein shrugs and says, I like to doodle during trials. Forget actually paying attention or getting ready for his crosses. Like, you know, normal people would do. He likes to draw the jury. In an anonymous jury trial where the sole count is the murder of a government witness. I look at his pad. The drawing sucked. They didn't even look like the jury. But naturally, now we have at least one jury, a juror, assuming he didn't tell anybody else on the panel, freaking completely out over the fact that Wasserstein is drawing his face for reasons he has to assume are nefarious. At one point, the government turns over some more discovery in the middle of the trial, and that happens, a report that was heavily redacted, all black lines over the paper except for a sentence or two. The judge allowed them to redact all well, the rest of it because it had nothing to do uh, with the witness's testimony. That's what happens. And the report had just a couple of lines that were relevant. And Howie finally lets loose with a good joke after like a year of knowing him. He says, and I and I wish Jerry was here to listen to this podcast. Jerry passed on a few months ago because he would laugh his ass off. And if his kids are listening or or his wife, you know Jerry would laugh at this. Howie said to the agent that handed us the very heavily redacted report, you should be on the cover of Redaction Magazine. It was funny, I swear. It was funny then. and It's a little funny now. It was funny. Jerry's doing the best that he can, and we're making some headway. Then Valerie Vassal's son, Stephen, testified. He was 15 years old now at the time of the testimony. He was 13 at the time of his mother's murder. And it's like the saddest direct testimony. The jury, part of them were crying during his testimony. He described how the gunman accosted him in the hallway of his apartment building, forced him inside, and then shot his mother while he was in another room. Quote, I heard a loud sound like a piece of glass tinkling on the floor, he testified. I walked into the living room and saw my mother on the couch. There was blood on the wall and all over her face. He was unable to identify Steve Brown as one of the gunmen, however, although he'd picked him out of a lineup two years prior. And Phil Katowicz cross-examined him gently and did a good job, but the young boy said that he had damaged his eyes from staring at a light bulb when his mother ordered him to go into his room and read as a child. He testified that he wore glasses for reading to correct double vision. The whole thing was just so sad and pathetic, and the jury was glaring at us with hatred. especially Burnett, who, who just looked uninterested and uncaring during the testimony. They were just glaring at him. Then on another day, Steve Brown is continuing to argue with Phil. And I'm in the middle, and it's just getting worse and worse. Suddenly, Brown stands up, reaches across me, and punches Phil in the face in front of the jury. It was wild. The marshals got on him pretty quickly, and they pulled him off. But it just looked bonkers for us would stayed on as Brown's lawyer. the judge you know, yelled at Brown, obviously. but he had no choice. The judge wasn't going to dismiss him in the middle of the trial. Now, whenever we'd score some points on cross, one of the defendants would fuck it up for us. Now now sitting next to Howie, because obviously uh, they moved uh, Brown all the way to the end, and he's just complaining the whole trial. <clears throat> Finally, we're having a bad day. With bad evidence coming in, Howie turns to me and says, If I have a heart attack now and stop the trial day, will that be good? I look at him, shocked, and I nod my head. You know, yeah, sure, if you have a a heart attack. He then proceeds to fall directly back onto his head, his chair toppling over backwards. He's on the ground with his head that had just clunked the ground. He's unconscious. There was no doctor in the courthouse. I had no idea. They don't have a doctor in in a a big federal courthouse in Brooklyn. They don't have a doctor on the premises. They had a nurse. took the nurse like 10 minutes to get there. The entire thing was a fake. He told me he was going to do it. Howie was fine. He just did this on his own. He didn't have a heart attack. I knew he didn't. The jury was screaming. The judge was freaking out. Everyone is shocked, except for me. I then give Jerry a look. Now, Jerry and I had for whatever reason, we got along so well. We had very similar brains. I just gave him a look. As Jerry's frantic thinking that Howie's dead, I gave him a look. And he knew exactly what I was conveying. And he just gave this little smirk at me. The nurse comes in and takes Howie's vitals. And she tells the judge, he's a very sick man. He's very sick. They called for an ambulance. Trial day over. Mission accomplished. Howie was so sick that he even faked being sick, and he was still sick. Now, in this trial, we had a, a very cordial relationship with the prosecutors. It's rare for lawyers like Jerry and myself we are very combative. But in this case, we got along with them. The two women were fair, and they weren't looking to kill us. They were, had offered Howie five years, which was a very fair offer, more than fair. And I don't recall the FBI case agent's name on the case, but he was a really decent guy. I think his name might have been Michael Burke. I don't recall. And he sidles up to me one morning, a great guy, sidles up to me one morning before the court day began and hands me a cassette tape, because that's what we used back then when you play tapes. There was no CDs. There were no computer files. It was cassettes. He tells me that Howie goes back to the jail at the end of the trial day and calls his family on a recorded line from prison, naturally, and all he does is badmouth Jerry and me. And we're having a pretty good trial. I listened to the cassette the first two times because it happened many times, and it was just ridiculous. He was so ungrateful. Now, it didn't affect our work on the case because we wanted to win for us. We weren't fighting, you know, for how we were fighting for us. But it was disheartening, frankly, after all the work that was put in. The trial finally ended and all three men were convicted in March of '96. We fought as hard as we could under the most ridiculous circumstances. The case actually had a shot at an acquittal at the beginning, but it just kept getting worse through no fault of our own. Howie was spitting mad at the end, and I looked at him and said, how could you not take five years? You'd be going home soon. He just refused to acknowledge that he was wrong about anything, any of this, nothing. A few months later, in November of 1996, just a few months later, I was sitting in my office and I received the call from a prison counselor from Michael Burnett's prison in Atlanta. He told me that Michael had died, that he was found dead in his cell, natural causes. And he was giving me his sympathies. And I'm like, confused. I said to him, why are you calling me? The counselor responded, and I wrote this in my notes contemporaneously, Mr. Burnett listed you as his next of kin. He had told me that he had a sister and a daughter, but I was his next of kin. That was weird. Not long after that, Howie Kranz died in prison. I did the quick math and figured out that had he taken the five years that the prosecutors had offered him, he still would have died in prison by a few months. So Howie was right, after all, not taking the five years. And it probably was the first time that he was right since I met him. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. Thank you for listening to this lengthy podcast. I hope that story entertained you. I can be found on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and next week, hopefully, my bronchitis will be completely gone and it won't sound so bad. Thanks for tuning in.